Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us for this, the first of our Trinity term uh, series of seminars on De Magistro, Aquinas and the Education of the Whole Person. Uh, my name is Oliver Keenan. I'm the director of the Aquinas Institute here at Blackfriars, and I'm pleased to introduce the first uh, speaker today, uh, Dr. Nick Austin, who is a Jesuit priest and currently Master of Campion Hall here in Oxford. Um, Nick uh, previously taught at Heathrop in the University of London uh, after taking his doctorate in moral theology at Boston College. And in 2017, he published uh, Aquinas on Virtue, which is uh, an excellent survey and reading of Aquinas on the subject of, of virtue, moral virtue, and is known for balancing both an attentiveness to Aquinas with an attentiveness to modern uh, moral theology as well. So Nick's going to speak to us on uh, Aquinas on right attention, and he's circulated a series of five headings uh, to help guide us through today's uh, talk. I'll repost them now in the chat and then hand over to Nick. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Oliver, for that uh, welcome. And thank you to Richard for the uh, introduction to take part in uh, this uh, interesting series on Aquinas and education. I'm sorry that I can't be with you all today, but it's a delight to be able to, to talk and uh, I look forward to the discussion uh, later on. So, the education of the eye, Aquinas and the virtue of right attention introduction. My aim in this talk is to establish the existence of a character virtue acutely germane to the theory and practice of education. The name Aquinas gives to this virtue in Latin is studiositas. And the uncomplicated and natural translation of this term into English is obviously studiousness. And that is what the older English translation of Aquinas's Summa Theologiae adopts. If this translation were accurate, one might think that it would not take too much to show that this virtue is indeed relevant to education. Do we not want to cultivate students who are studious? That is, well-disciplined, quiet and focused in class, diligent in their homework, and conscientious in all their study. But there are two immediate problems with this kind of move. The first is that it's extremely boring. If being an obedient and conscientious student is all that is being talked of, uh, you, the participants in this seminar, could be forgiven for hitting the leave button before I get to the end of this, the first paragraph. Do we even really want students to be studious in that rather dull, lifeless sense? Would we not prefer students who may not be quite so compliant, but are ready to question, to challenge, to inquire? Students who are ready to think. And secondly, there is a strong argument that studiousness is a lazy and inapt translation in any case. Witness the Thomist philosopher Joseph Pieper, who vigorously dismisses the idea that we are talking here 
trivially and condescendingly of the virtue of the open quotation marks good student close quotation marks for Pieper, when we talk of this virtue we are talking rather of the very desire for knowledge and experience studiositas is not the virtue of a tyrannical superego but of well-channeled desire we are dealing here not with clay to be moulded, but with fire. Since I contest the translation of the term studiositas as studiousness, I shall instead mostly use the English word studiosity to translate Aquinas' term. Not because this latter word adds much, but because its archaic and unfamiliar feel enables it to serve as a placeholder, a heuristic, while we keep our minds open about what it refers to. Then we will have a chance of understanding what Aquinas meant without importing the unfortunate connotations of the good and studious student. Much writing focuses not on the virtue of studiosity, but on the corresponding vice, namely curiosity. While there are some ancient precedents for this virtue, notably in Plutarch and Apuleius, it's Augustine's rich account, especially in his Confessions, that became the central reference point, the source and inspiration for the later tradition, including Bede, Bernard of Clairvaux, Blaise Pascal, Martin Heidegger and J.R.R. Tolkien. Augustine's seminal contribution is one of both narrative and of theology. He portrays curiosity, especially through the good-willed but comic character of Augustine's friend Olypius, whose curiosity, among other things, gets him arrested on suspicion of theft and leads to an addiction to the Roman games. The idea that curiosity is a vice often divides modern audiences. On the one hand, Augustine's stories and analysis of curiosity are often felt to have a peculiarly contemporary resonance. Augustine recounts how, while travelling one day, he was distracted from a deep thought by the sight of a hound chasing a hare his head turns to follow the spectacle. And when he catches himself, noticing what he is doing, he's disappointed. This may seem a trivial or even scrupulous example, but Augustine had long renounced going to the Roman games in which the crowd delighted in watching animals maul each other to death and enjoyed witnessing executions and the like. Augustine is disappointed to find in himself a remnant from the old habits, a concupiscent impulse to see whether the hound would tear the hare to pieces. His head turns automatically before conscious choice. Augustine's experience speaks across the centuries to our own time, wherein the advertising and entertainment industries contrive a thousand virtual hairs to cross our path every day. 
and our heads are unwittingly turned again and again. We keenly feel the danger that, like Augustine, it is a struggle to focus on a single thing long enough to explore it in depth. We fear we may become distracted people. Throughout the literature on curiosity, we find the metaphor of wandering, the evagatio mensis, the wandering of the mind, an aimless straying from one thing to the next. This, this image complements another we're more familiar with, that of surfing the internet from one page to another. Surfing, always staying on the surface. Such Im images convey a lot about minds formed by the digital world in a collective attention deficit disorder. What better guide to these challenges than Augustine? Yet, at the same time, the thought that curiosity is a vice is often surprising and even scandalous to a contemporary audience. And I think with good reason. There is a danger that the Augustinian critique can come across as moralistic. There's a danger that we begin with a suspicion of the desire to know and understand, focusing first and foremost on how it can go wrong. There's a danger that we can reject modern technologies when in fact they can often serve helpful purposes. Augustine's thinking on curiosity is likely to be seen therefore as a remnant from a pre-scientific era when, so it is assumed, free inquiry was suppressed due to the dominance of the church. Since at least the 17th century, when scientists and philosophers had to defend their inquiries against the accusation of vain curiosity and the associated vice of pride, there's been a reaction against the classification of curiosity as a vice. From thinkers such as Francis Bacon and Thomas Hobbes on, curiosity is gradually rehabilitated and by the mid-19th century, curiosity's status as a positive trait is generally acknowledged. From this modern perspective, in the context of education today, the suggestion that curiosity might be a vice is often met with an especially short response. In reaction to the claim that there is such a thing as a blamable desire for knowledge, one educational writer protests, Educators should prefer even frighteningly curious students to those who have no interest, no sense of wonder. Thomas Aquinas's virtue-based approach, I believe, offers a helpful way to steer our way through these contested waters. By distinguishing virtue from vice, Aquinas makes the simple observation that we are not caught on the horns of a dilemma, either to throw the very desire to know under suspicion or to offer an indiscriminate approbation of any and every impulse to see and to find out. Rather, there are ways of doing well and ways of doing badly, ways of succeeding and of failing, ways of habitually going right and of habitually going wrong in this sphere of the desire to know. Aquinas's ethic of the eye, that is, is a discerning ethic. 
he recognizes the validity of the Augustinian critique that we very much need today in what has been termed the attention economy and an academic world that has at times been crudely instrumentalized. Crucially, however, Aquinas also avoids a distorted hyper-Augustinianism that begins with suspicion of the desire to know, a moralistic denunciation of the positive aspects of our contemporary realities. In sum, Aquinas offers us neither an ethic of naive affirmation nor one of moralistic suspicion, but one of discernment whereby we are asked carefully to sift the wheat from the chaff. Aquinas's ethic of the eye at root contains a deep affirmation of desire. The accent on desire, in my view, is rather momentous. Do we want an ethic of knowledge fundamentally led by the moralizing superego? by the fear of the myriad ways the appetitive impulse to understand can go wrong? Or do we not want rather an ethic of attention and knowledge based ultimately upon a positive affirmation of the desire to know? If the latter, Aquinas, I believe, is the place to start. The virtue of studiosity is not merely an element in his ethics, although it is certainly that. It is also a key jigsaw piece in his theological anthropology, that is, his understanding of what it means to be human. This desire, the appetitive inclination to understand, to know, to learn, on Aquinas's view, is implanted in human nature by God, and it is in its perfection and realization that our flourishing and perfection primarily lies. What then is the virtue of studiosity? Does it really exist? In good Thomist methodology, the latter question should come before the former. One begins with the question, an est, is there any such thing? Before attempting to answer, quid est, what is it? Existence before essence. And the question whether there is any such virtue in this case is not a facile one. It's likely that no one before Aquinas talked of the virtue of studiosity. If I am right, Aquinas was the very first to name it. The novelty of his account in the Summer Theologiae is evident from the fact that despite copious writings on virtue, he had never previously mentioned this particular virtue once. Suddenly, without warning, it arises in the treatise on temperance in the second part of the second part of the summer, apparently newborn from his quill. Did Aquinas just invent a virtue? Or is it rather a genuine moral discovery of his mature work? Indeed, one of his most original and important finds. A key part not only of his ethics and theory of education, but also, as I say, of his theological anthropology, his account of what makes human beings human. It is this that I want to argue. 
So I'll begin by attempting to reconstruct what I take to be Aquinas's discovery of this virtue. Then I'll examine three ways in which Aquinas argues for its existence, focusing on the natural inclination it perfects, its distinction from the intellectual virtues, and its distinction from the opposing vice of curiosity. I hope that by these three arguments, the contours of studiosity and the relevance for the theory and practice of learning and education will come into view. Section two, Aquinas's discovery. Aquinas goes out on a limb to establish the existence of studiosity as a virtue. As Thomas Gilby points out, it was the virtue of docilitas or teachableness that was well founded in the Christian tradition. Less prominent was the zest for scientific discovery, which grew with the 13th century and was so energetically exemplified in St. Albert the Great, the teacher of St. Thomas. Studiosity has an Albertine feel about it in its appropriation of the zeal to understand through the sciences and the arts. It is as much about agency as it is about receptivity. It's unfortunate that such a life-affirming virtue, newly named by Aquinas, seems quickly to have become the virtue that the Western tradition forgot. How does one go about establishing and naming new virtue, especially if there are in the preceding tradition so few foreshadowings that the purported character trait does not yet even have a name? It may be worth trying to reconstruct Aquinas's process of discovery. I suspect that he does, as always, begin by studying the tradition. He finds in St. Augustine a vice clearly named and described, both in the Confessions and in other writings. Yet Augustine does not clearly posit a contrasting virtue, despite his only very rich explorations of the intellect's ascent to God. Aquinas therefore feels justified in what otherwise would appear to be a brazen innovation, the construction of a new virtue. His methodology demands it. In Aquinas's thought, therefore, a vice is only ever a foil for a virtue, since good is conceptually and ontically prior to evil, the privation of the good. As he puts it, in knowledge, virtue comes before sin, because the crooked line is known through the straight. Thomas inherits an important vice from the Augustinian tradition, but he simply cannot bring himself to talk of it before having outlined the corresponding virtue. So he invents one, or rather he names one that has not been named before. Why does Aquinas call the virtue opposed to the vice of curiosity, studiosity? There are at least two good reasons. First, Augustine had distinguished the studious from the curious person. I quote, we do not usually call someone curiosus, curious, without some element of criticism, but we call someone studiosus 
even as a complement. On the basis of this contrast, it's natural to turn the adjective studiosus into an abstract noun, studiositas, the praiseworthy characteristic contrasting with curiosity. Second reason for the chosen name, I suggest, lies in a medieval theologian well known to Aquinas, Hugh of St. Victor. In his Didascalion, De Studio Legendi, Hugh praises the studium querendi, the eagerness for inquiry, and sees it as an essential characteristic of the students, the scholar, seeking wisdom in the arts and sciences, and especially in theology. As the medievalist scholar Professor Richard Brown suggested to me, this is the kind of thing that Aquinas has in mind. What Hugh gives Aquinas is an exemplar for the virtue, the scholar who devotes all his learning ultimately to growing in divine wisdom. As Aquinas notes, the word studiosity comes from the Latin word studium, which refers to a kind of eagerness to learn and to know. It's natural then to see studiosity as the virtue of a lively and well-channeled studium or eager desire to inquire, to learn, to understand, a plausible antidote to the Augustinian vice of curiosity. So in summary, Aquinas might have come to realize the need for the virtue of studiosity in three steps. First, he notices the existence of a vice in Augustine that appears to have no corresponding virtue. And the very structure of Aquinas's accounts of virtue and vice in the Summer Theologiae, in which systematically vices are explained in terms of divide, divergence from the virtues, requires the insertion of a question on the corresponding virtue. Second, taking a hint from Augustine's opposition between the studious and curious student, Aquinas forms the abstract noun studiosity to name this virtue. Finally, Aquinas finds a helpful confirmation in an important medieval predecessor, Hugh of St. Victor, in his account and praise for the studium querendi, the eagerness for seeking to learn which fleshes out in some narrative detail what the virtue might look like. It's difficult to talk of a virtue without being able to point to a narrative about how it can be lived out in a human life and contribute to human flourishing. Complementing Augustine's rich narrative of curiosity and the moral harm it can bring in Olypius's and Augustine's own life, Aquinas may have found in Hugh's Didascalion a positive narrative of how this virtue can be displayed and contribute to, to a flourishing and holy life. One might add that given the place the eagerness to learn and understand plays in Aquinas's own life and vocation as a theologian, as a teacher, one may imagine the resonance he felt in his own experience as he began to unveil this previously unnamed yet nevertheless very real virtue, so important for the life of learning. Number three, the natural desire to know. Despite his reverence for tradition, 
Aquinas is never content merely with the firm basis in his authorities for any of his key claims. He always also desires a convincing rationale. It is not enough to know that. One should also try to understand why. At a key point in the argument, Aquinas notes the very first sentence of Aristotle's metaphysics, all human beings naturally desire to know. The adverb naturally indicates that here we are at the level of anthropology, the account of what makes a human being human. It's difficult to overestimate the importance of this natural desire to know for Aquinas's theology of the human being, since on his view, human beatitude lies in the fulfillment of this desire in the very vision of God. The cornerstone of Thomas's account of studiosity and curiosity then is an anthropology that gives central place to the desire for knowledge, since the desire to know ultimately opens out into the desire to know God. Why, though, do we need a virtue to direct our desire for knowledge if we have an inclination rooted in our created nature towards knowing? Here it's necessary to recall that for Thomas, a natural tendency, well good in itself, does not possess the full nature of a virtue. Nature can give us an undifferentiated inclination towards some good. The work of virtue, however, is to channel this inclination in the right way and right direction in varying circumstances. The natural appetite for knowledge that is in us from our created nature then awaits maturity in the habitus of studiosity. My Dominican brothers in religion will indulge me if in order to illustrate the difference between the natural inclination and the virtue, I recount a Jesuit joke. Jesuits who are training for the priesthood, as you may know, tend to spend a couple of years teaching in a school after their philosophy studies before moving on to theology. In the past, British Jesuits often did their philosophy studies in Dublin at Milltown Park where the great Jesuit philosopher Bernard Lonergan featured strongly in the syllabus. In particular, Jesuit students would read Lonergan's masterpiece, Insight, in which a key principle is what he calls the unrestricted desire to know. For Lonergan, and I quote, the imminent source of transcendence in man is his detached, disinterested, unrestricted desire to know. As it is the origin of all his questions, it is the origin of the radical further questions that take him beyond the defined limits of particular issues. The joke then is that after learning about this fundamental aspect of human nature through Aquinas and Lonergan in their years of philosophy studies, Jesuit would then spend the next two years looking for the slightest evidence of the unrestricted desire to know in their teenage students. A natural inclination is not yet a virtue. It follows from all this that if we were to look for a spirituality of study of the intellectual life, a good place to begin would be in the virtue of studiosity.
According to Aquinas, studiosity is about the right ordering of an inclination that flowers ultimately in the knowledge of God. Studiosity, therefore, has the capacity to motivate and integrate all our attempts to know and understand various truths within our overall journey to the contemplation of the first truth. A little later in the summer, in his reflections on the contemplative life, Aquinas again quotes Augustine. In the consideration of creatures, we should not exercise an empty and transitory curiosity, but rather make them steps to immortal and everlasting things. Once again, Hugh St. Victor's description of the Studium Querendi is helpful background here. Aquinas's vision of the intellectual life is one in which our knowledge of creatures becomes stepping stone to the knowledge of God. The image of stepping stones has its limitations. Cardinal Cajetan, the great 16th century Dominican commentator on Aquinas, worries that Aquinas's claim that all knowledge needs to be referred to the knowledge of God by the virtue of studiosity could undermine the goodness of the desire for knowledge of creatures for its own sake. Knowledge of creatures surely is not merely a stepping stone to something else, but is good in itself. Without this affirmation, a spirituality of study grounded in Aquinas's studiosity could sound like a recommendation for piety, as though the scientist with his lab coat on needs to be praying at the same time. For Kajitan, however, this would be to miss the profoundly spiritual significance of knowledge of creatures in its own right. When studying a plant, say, we need not be thinking of how this can lead us to know God better. Rather, Kajitan insists that by its very own nature, he says, knowledge of a creature constitutes a step of ascent to the knowledge of God. I'll repeat that quotation from Kajitan. By its very own nature, knowledge of a creature constitutes a step of ascent to the knowledge of God. It's not so much that we need to shoehorn reference to God into our scientific endeavours, but rather that we need to see how they already include knowledge of God, at least incipiently. For Kajitan, as long as our knowledge is of the kind that fits with a life directed towards seeing God, all search for knowledge is of spiritual significance. A spirituality of learning based on studiosity is not so much about trying to make knowledge of spiritual significance, but recognising the way learning about creation is already part of our spiritual journey. Section four, studiosity as a virtue of desire, not intellect. There's an important objection to seeing studiosity as a virtue. By the time he comes to provide an account of studiosity, Aquinas has already acknowledged a set of virtues whose task it is to dispose to excellent activity in the sphere of cognition, namely, the intellectual virtues of the sciences, the arts, and of the virtue of wisdom. 
our purported virtue then would appear to be superfluous. In reply, Aquinas insists on distinguishing the moral virtue of studiosity from the intellectual virtues. One of the recent developments in virtue theory has been a recovery of the intellectual virtues and some very interesting work has been done on virtue epistemology, for example, by the Catholic philosopher Linda Zagzebski. Much of this work, however, elides the distinction between the virtues of the mind and the moral virtues. Yet Aquinas wants to make a clear distinction between them while acknowledging their interdependence in various ways. And I think Aquinas has good reason to clearly distinguish. Aquinas points out that the intellectual virtues aim at the truth, whereas the moral virtues aim at living and acting well or rightly. As the philosopher Julia Annas helpfully points out, while these aims often complement each other, since living well and rightly can hardly be done without reliably true judgment, at times these goals come apart, as when a scientist becomes so attached to her research agenda that she neglects the tasks of justice and friendship towards others. So I would argue with Aquinas and Anas that it is necessary to distinguish the intellectual and moral virtues. It's this distinction that enables Aquinas to create a conceptual space for studiosity as a moral virtue. While studiosity pertains to knowledge, its immediate work is not to ensure that a person judges truly. That would be to usurp the role of the intellectual virtues. Rather, studiosity is primarily aimed at right desire for knowledge and the right application of our faculties for knowing. For the very appetite for knowing the truth, he stays, says, can be well or badly ordered. Indeed, studiosity is not directly about cognition itself, but about the appetite and studium of gaining knowledge. Again, the ultimate insight is that an ethic of studiosity is an ethic of desire and will. Even the life of learning is shaped by appetite and choice. There are choices to be made about how to pursue the truth, which subjects to investigate and for what ends. It is the indispensable role of studiosity to order the pursuit of truth in line with the requirements of moral virtue and the overall end of life. As Aquinas puts it, the work of studiosity is that a human being have a right appetite for applying the cognitive power, thus or otherwise, to this or to that. The work of studiosity is that a human being have a right appetite for applying the cognitive power, thus or otherwise, to this or to that. By delineating the virtue of studiosity as contrasted with the intellectual virtues, Aquinas makes a contribution to educational theory by addressing the ultimate motivation for learning and its cultivation, not in an intellectual, but a moral virtue, that is, the virtue of desire. Number five, 
studiosity versus curiosity. There's only need of a virtue where there's also the possibility of a vice. To establish a virtue's necessity then requires us to show that there is some sphere of choice or voluntary activity in which it's possible habitually to do well or badly, to succeed or to fail. Now the sphere of studiosity, as we have seen, is the desire for learning, or more technically, the studium, which Aquinas characterizes as the vehement application of the mind to something. This leads to a problem for Aquinas, since it's not immediately clear that studium is the kind of sphere of life in which one can do well or badly. For is it not always good to inquire, to think, to research? Is not the knowledge of the truth and the desire thereof always a good? How could there ever be a bad studium? Aquinas is well aware of the objection and states it briefly. Knowledge as such is a good thing, and the desire for a good thing is itself good. So how can the desire for knowledge be bad? As noted above, this is the objection likely to be felt with the strongest force today. Modern thought tends to see curiosity as a vice, as a, as a virtue rather than a vice, and suspects any claim to the contrary of moralistic authoritarianism. Take, for example, the new movement of positive psychology, which helpfully to my mind focuses especially on the virtues and character strengths necessary for human flourishing. Positive psychology classifies curiosity as a character strength subsumed under the virtue of wisdom and knowledge. Curiosity, it is claimed, includes three dimensions. First, interest an emotional state which initiates and sustains exploration. Second, novelty seeking, which is a propensity for seeking novel and exciting experiences to elevate stimulation to an optimal level. And third, openness to experience, which involves receptivity to novel fantasies, feelings, ideas, and values. <coughs> One reason for the substantive divergence between positive psychology and Aquinas' perspective is a difference in anthropology. Again, I mean anthropology in the sense of a basic understanding of human nature. For Aquinas, while created human nature is good, it is also fallen, and therefore subject to the inclination towards sin. This remnant of original sin is constituted by a certain blindness in the human intellect, a crookedness in the human will, and a disorder in the passions, which is often termed concupiscence, the inordinate attraction to sensible goods. In particular, Aquinas follows Augustine in identifying concupiscence of the eyes as the root of curiosity. This latter term can be misleading because what matters for concupiscence to be of the eyes is not so much that it concerns the visual organs, but rather that it delights in knowing or apprehension. 
Augustine points out it makes no sense to say listen for anything red or smell how shiny, but we can meaningfully say let's see how this sounds or see what this tastes like. Sight therefore can in an extended sense refer to any cognitive function. Concupiscence of the eyes then is concupiscence of apprehension of whatever kind. In contrast to Aquinas, Martin Seligman, the founder of positive, the positive psychology movement, rejects what he calls the rotten to the core dogma about human nature, of which for him the doctrine of original sin is one expression and Freudian psychology another. In particular, he opposes the practical value of what he calls negative motivation. The idea that positive change in human beings comes about by removing negative traits. Positive psychology, therefore, offers a list of virtues and character strengths, but does not investigate any corresponding vices. Authentic happiness, Seligman says, comes from identifying and cultivating your most fundamental strengths and using them every day in work, love, play and parenting. Consequently, when positive psychology talks of curiosity, it never thinks to investigate the shadow side of the desire to know. Positive psychology rejects a bias towards the negative but replaces it with an equally unacceptable positive bias. If the scientific research agenda of positive psychology is driven entirely by identifying positive traits, it's unsurprising that it has missed the possibility that there may be a vice in the field of the human desire to know and experience. This leads to problems in the formulation of the virtue. Positive psychology concedes that novelty seeking, theorized as one aspect of the character strength of curiosity, may lead to negative outcomes such as illegal substance abuse and promiscuous sexual behavior. Nevertheless, the claim is made that all three aspects of curiosity are associated with a myriad of positive outcomes. This is important information but an overall balance of benefits over harms is not enough to identify a trait as a moral virtue. What Aristotle said about the virtue to do with anger also applies in this case. Whether we call it studiosity with Aquinas or curiosity with positive psychology, the trait could only count as a virtue if it is disposed towards desiring in the right way towards the right objects of knowledge in a way that is fitting for the particular circumstances. Curiosity as characterized by positive psychology may have its benefits, but it is not a virtue. To clarify this point from a virtue theory perspective, an important observation Aquinas makes elsewhere is helpful. Aquinas calls traits that are basically positive, but unguided by the discriminating direction of prudence, merely beginnings of virtue. He points out that such inclinations can actually be quite dangerous, since they are not guided by practical wisdom. 
and he employs a rather vivid analogy to illustrate this point. Ordinarily, speed is a virtue or swiftness is a virtue in a horse. Yet if a horse is blind, the faster it runs, the harder it falls and the more damage it causes. So swiftness is not really a virtue in a blind horse. Positive psychology's curiosity can, its proponents concede, lead to all kinds of undesirable behaviours. It is therefore not a complete virtue, but a swift blind horse. Seligman's claims about the fruitlessness of negative motivation in cultivating virtue are empirical claims worth evaluating and incidentally not entirely foreign to Aquinas's own approach, for whom the desire for the good always comes first. But a sound moral psychology must acknowledge with Aquinas that human nature is susceptible to somewhat chaotic, disordered impulses and inclinations that make the cultivation of virtue difficult and can lead us astray. Whether those impulses are ascribed to evil spirits, original sin, evolutionary dynamics, or the human situatedness in morally mixed communities and societies. Aquinas's view of human nature is neither pessimistic nor optimistic, but realistic and hopeful. In general, natural human inclinations are capable of maturing into virtue and are at risk of being malformed into vice. Why should the desire to know be any different? Fundamentally, it is necessary to acknowledge a vice of curiosity as well as a virtue of studiosity because of the possibility of the distortion of the basic impulse to know. Augustine refers to a vain and curious lust which disguises itself in the name of knowledge and understanding. Disguises itself in the name of knowledge and understanding. Augustine, with his customary psycho-spiritual insight, has correctly identified an impulse that masquerades as the desire for knowledge, and which, as his friend Alepius, can come to possess even the good-willed. In a rich passage in Being and Time, the philosopher Martin Heidegger contrasts curiosity with the basic human impulse to know, the care for seeing, which is essential to man's being, he says. He states, when curiosity has become free, however, it concerns itself with seeing, not in order to understand what is seen, but just in order to see. The care for seeing, which was about grasping something and being knowingly in the truth, has been undermined. Care becomes concerned with the possibilities of seeing the world merely as it looks. Heidegger refers to concupiscence of the eyes as a tendency just to perceive, wanting to see, without wanting to understand. The implications for the practice of learning and education are quite profound. In a digital culture, 
dominated by the desire to just see, how can we cultivate the desire to see in order to understand?